Hey, but good morning. I'm Pastor Paul. So glad you're here uh, celebrating Mother's Day with us. And let me just say, if you're if you're a, a husband, um, children, you're just it's just now dawning on you, coming on your radar that this is Mother's Day. Well, let, let me just offer this word, okay? I think this is what Jesus referred to when he called when he talked about the death. I mean, the sin that leads to death. Okay, you are committing it right now. Circle K is open, but so hurry, rush over after the service. But anyway, we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Open your Bibles there. Um, you know, we've been celebrating Mother's Day in this country for over 100 years, but obviously its roots go back much, much further. The Gospel of John tells us that as Jesus was dying on the cross, he looks down at his mother, and is that not so such what a mother would do? there with her son to the end of his life. And then he looks at his best friend in ministry, the disciple that Jesus loved, John. And he looks at his mom and he says, mother, behold your son. And then he looks at John, he says, son, behold your mother. And then it tells us that Mary went from that day to live with John for the rest of her life. You see, because she was a widow, had been a widow, And now her oldest son, who'd been called to provide for her, was going away. And in doing this and entrusting the care of his mother, Jesus was doing or carrying out the explicit commands of God in the Old Testament from the earliest of times. You can't throw a rock at the Old Testament and not hit a scripture text which talks about the priority is for the people of God to care for, care for widows and orphans and those who are the most needy. And of course, this continued right up and through the New Testament and the early church. We read, for example, in Acts 6, where there was this burgeoning need for the care of the widows in the New Testament church. And we see how the apostles commissioned these deacons and Stephen and others to put all this organizational care and thought and structure to how the church was going to meet this critical need. And, and by the way, as a side, it was this, this, this living out the gospel on the part of the early church And that has continued throughout the history of the church that has so distinguished the Christian faith above all others as those who uniquely care for those who cannot care for themselves. But just as in the New Testament, we see this organizational structure, this bureaucracy that's put into place to care for widows, just like in our own time, when we are part of an organization or bureaucracy an administrative structure that's tasked with doing something, those organizations and structures are open to abuse and mismanagement. And so it was in the church in Ephesus, where Paul had sent Timothy to deal with a pressing problem, many pressing problems. But the problem we're looking at in 1 Timothy 5 is how do we care for the widows in our midst? And it seems that there had been this system set up for care of widows in the church, but things were going awry. Widows who didn't need financial assistance or who had means were kind of living off the, the, the church dole. They were receiving their stimulus checks in perpetuity, right? There, there were widows who maybe didn't have means, but they, but they came from families who could support them, but these families weren't supporting the, their fam, own family members. They were letting the church do it on their behalf. 
There were, there were other widows who had committed to a life of, of servanthood as a widow. And if we find out that they were not being faithful in their own ministry, they were abandoning their posts. And this is what's classic. Into this fray, Paul sends young Timothy and he says, go fix it. Thanks, Paul. That was very helpful. I'm sure Timothy said. Now, a financial advisor once told me, you know, Paul, people are generally pretty reasonable about most issues. And of course, this was pre-COVID when he said this. They're pretty reasonable about most issues, except when it comes to their money and their kids. He said, beware when you venture into those, into those categories and areas. Well, listen, Timothy is making his way right into the middle of a treacherous situation. He, he, is, he is about to navigate a relational minefield. He is going to come face-to-face with sacred cows, peoples whose pocketbooks might be threatened by the decisions he would make. Um, he would be speaking into the sense of entitlement that had come over the church in Ephesus. He was going to be advocating for people who had no one to advocate for them. He was going to be meddling into family alliances. This was treacherous waters. And so Timothy is going to need all the wisdom and courage he can muster. And so we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 5. We're going to read verses 1 through 16. If you can, if you're able, I'd love for you to stand with me as we read God's word today. 1 Timothy 5. Here is what Paul tells Timothy. Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters, in all purity. Honor widows who are truly widows. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. She who is truly a widow, left all alone, has set her hope on God and continues in supplications and prayers night and day. But she who is self-indulgent is dead even while she lives. Command these things as well so that they may be without reproach. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age, having been the wife of one husband and having a reputation for good works. If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, but refuse to enroll younger widows, for when their passions draw them away from Christ, they desire to marry, and so incur condemnation for having abandoned their former faith. Besides that, they learn to be idlers, going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies, saying what they should not. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. For some have already strayed after Satan. If any believing woman has relatives who are widows, let her care for them. Let the church not be burdened so that it may care for those who are truly widows. Let's pray. Lord, um, our, our hearts resonate just from a cultural image of God perspective that, that we want to help and serve those who need it most. 
But Lord, we have to confess when we come to this ancient text, 2,000 years, that so much of it just seems so um, obtuse and distant and, and just hard to understand. But Lord, we know that you've given us your word for a reason. There's not one dot, there is not one jot, one tittle that is wasted. All of your word is so necessary for our lives. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would help us, give us grace as we come to this text. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. I don't have to tell you this, but when it comes to gender and sexuality, the cultural narrative is essentially there really should be no differences or distinctions in how we view these things. They're all sort of kind of melded into one giant glob. And, and, and to do so, to distinguish who people are differently by sex or gender, um, is oppressive. It's, it's, it's leftover remnants from a previous patriarchal culture. These categories of gender and sexuality, the cultural narrative goes, are to be interchangeable. They are to, to be amorphous. They're just sort of to, to kind of be free-floating and fluid. Now... It's really, really important, church, that we learn what it means to think about something biblically. See, when we think about something biblically, we don't just simply slap a Bible verse on it, right, and, and, and say something sort of in response, although that's part of it. We, both, we have to provide a, a grand critique, a, a grand critique to the cultural narrative, and that comes only from the Word of God understanding that the Word of God is the grand narrative. It is the overarching truth which speaks into every culture, every time, every place, every situation, every relationship. It is to the Word of God that we must look in its scope, in its entirety, to, to speak into and bring critique upon the cultural narratives of the day. When we think about... The, the current cultural narrative where it relates to these issues of roles and gender and sexuality, it's absolutely crucial that we get the whole scope of what the Bible says about these things, or a text, let's be honest, like this one, makes absolutely no sense. Because here is the foundational thread that we have touched upon as we've gone through this book of Timothy. And by the way, didn't plan for us to, to get to this text on this day, Mother's Day, God, does he not, always shows us faithful as we commit to preach through his word. But the foundational thread of this text is the foundational thread of Timothy is simply this, that the church is a family. It's not just some kind of conglomeration of various competing interests or political parties. It is, in fact, a family. And for those of you, when you think about your own family, and for better or for worse, we all come from a family. We're all part of some family or have been a part of some family. We know instinctively, even non-Christians understand this, you don't treat everyone in the family in the same way. To do so would be unloving. To do so would be unkind and unwise and unrealistic. And so it is with the family of God. And so there's two things that we want to look at in this text that Paul is directing to Timothy. First, we want to look at Timothy's pastoral posture. 
And here Paul wants to talk to Timothy about how people in the church are to treat other people in the church in a general sense. How he is to treat them as pastors and then how they are to engage and treat one another as family members. But then secondly, Paul's going to talk to Timothy about Timothy's pastoral prescription. And here he's going to get Timothy to take these principles that he's given under this first point and then apply them to a case study. And of course, this case study is the provision and care of widows in the church in Ephesus. And we as the people of God, um, even for what might seem an obscure, obtuse text for where we are culturally, uh, when it comes to some of these issues, I think we're going to find it's very relevant and very timely. So let's look first at Timothy's pastoral posture. And this is going to But we're going to find this in these first two verses. Let me read those again. He says, Timothy, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father, younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. So there's four kind of general categories of people in the church. Younger men, older men, younger women, younger women. Now you'll notice this morning um, that you did not get a slip of paper when you came in that designated which group you're in, okay? And because we actually want you to come back next week. Right? We, we did not do that. And, and, and see, Paul's point here is not to set up this rigid taxonomy and like the older men here and the younger women there. And that's not the point. The point is, depending upon who you are in whatever particular relationship or conversation that you're engaged in at that moment, you might fall into a different category, See, there, there, there may be certain relationships where you are the older man. There may be certain relationships where you are the younger woman, okay, and vice versa. All of these things are, are fluid, flexible, but what Paul gives us here is a general disposition for how we are to engage one another in the body of Christ. Now, the overarching directive that Paul gives Timothy, look at verse 1. And this is the principle that governs all family relationships. Um, He spells out in two verbs, okay? And now these two verbs, they're the only two verbs in these first two verses. It may look like they only pertain to older men, but they actually um, govern the whole structure of the passage. And, And here are those two words, okay, that are applied to all interactions in the body of Christ. They're simply this. Church, don't rebuke, do encourage. Don't rebuke, do encourage. Now, one of the things we need to say right up top is that this doesn't mean that there isn't correction in the body of Christ. Otherwise, Paul wouldn't be writing this letter, okay? What Paul is talking about is the way we want to correct each other, the way we want to approach each other, the way we want to engage each other. So there are several words for rebuke in the New Testament. The word for rebuke here in this passage is one that implies, listen, sharpness and severity. It's one that, 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 that has the connotation of, of warning and sharpness and directness. Now, one of the things you, we have to realize, and by the way, there is a place for that in the body of Christ. In fact, we're going to look at a passage next week where Paul uses this precise word in another context. But he, here, he says, don't use it. And think about it this way. 
So, so as a parent, if your child is running full tilt towards the busy intersection and there's a car coming, um, you are most likely going to let out a blood-curdling scream and run as fast as you can, right, to grab, to snatch them to safety. If you didn't do that, it would be unloving, okay? But probably you're not going to use that same tenor or tone when it comes time to empty the dishwasher, right? Or to ask your child to pick up their dirty laundry, right? That wouldn't be appropriate. Here Paul is talking about the normative way within the scope of things that we deal with one another in the family. So he says, don't rebuke, in other words, sharpness and severity. Instead, courage, uh, encourage. And here the, the word conveys the idea that in our correction of one another in the body of Christ, we're to make a plea. We're, we're, we're imploring. We're, we're beseeching. You know, dads, you're, you're sitting beside your son on the couch and you have something really important that you want to tell him and you get down on one knee and say, son, there's something really, I really want to convey this from my, from my heart. That's the nature of this word. It's, it's, it's beseeching or pleading or entreating with the idea of helping someone redirect themselves to get on the right path. Now, what does that principle rebuking, not rebuking, but encouraging, what does that look like within the context of our relationships? And I'm, I'm um, indebted to John MacArthur, who I think does an excellent job in, in pointing out what is to distinguish each of these relationships, okay? So let's, we're going to talk about all four of them, okay? Here, understanding you are most, you are undoubtedly, if you're a part of the church family, going to find yourself either on the giving or the receiving end of all of these relationships. And they're all pertinent to all of us. He says, first of all, for older men, okay, let's look back at the text, treat that older man as you would a father. And here's the operative word, ready? Respect. Respect. Guys, let me ask you this. When you think about correcting your father, and maybe your father is passed away, but when you think of correcting your father, like what sort of goes on inside of you internally? You know, my dad is 80 years old. We just celebrated his birthday. I would not, he's a widower. I would not want to do anything for the life of me to hurt him. Like it just, it, it wounds me to think that I, would, that I would hurt him. If I had a concern or request, what would I do? Well, two things. One, I would respectfully entreat him hey, dad, let me, let, me, let me share my heart about something, okay? And then I would want to be super clear. See, part of respect is being clear. And a lot of times, okay, older men, whoever that happens to be in here, okay, um, value clarity. What are you saying? What are you asking me to do? <laughs> How can I help you? What? And, and to be unclear is to be unkind. To be unclear is to be disrespectful, and so there is this idea of respecting and entreating. Now, an interesting place that we find this in the New Testament that I've never thought of until I studied this passage and heard Dr. MacArthur talk about it, but in Galatians 2, that is a situation where Paul is confronting Peter. And interestingly enough, Peter in that context, guess what, is the older man. Not only is he older biologically, but he had been a Christian longer than Paul. 
He had been with Jesus. Paul's Johnny come lately on the scene, but Peter is not walking in accordance with the gospel. He's, he's not living in a way that affirms gospel truths, and Paul has to go and confront him. But interestingly, how it's, it, this is fascinating, how does Paul entreat Peter, okay, as an older man? He says he does it publicly, but, but let's listen to, this, listen to this from Galatians 2. Paul ask a question. He asked Peter, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Do you hear that? He's entreating him. He's at, and guys, questions are great ways to do this, to entreat an older man with respect. Hey, help, help me understand. How can these things fit together? Like what's, help me you know, you're not the middle linebacker who's going up into the hole and meeting the runner head on, okay? Not respectful in a general normative kind of sense. So for older men, the operative word is respect. For younger men, let's keep going here, the operative word is humility. We'll look back. It says, treat younger men as brothers, as equals in Christ. Because there can be a great temptation and we all know it, we've all been there, we've either done it or been on the receiving end to disparage youth, right? To patronize, to condescend those crazy millennials or the Generation Z, they're all really zombies, you know, or whatever the case is. I can't believe we have to entrust the future of the country and the world to, to, this, to this group. Because there's an infamous video Susan and I watched years ago. There's a well, well-known Christian leader who was talking as an older man to church planters, and he was berating them for being soft and whiny and complainers and hanging out in their mom's basement playing Xbox and Fortnite and all these sorts of things. And he probably was right. But nonetheless, I remember at the time going, yeah, go get them, right? But through age and hopefully experience, I've really come to a different place in understanding that young men need confidence. As future leaders, we don't need to hum- humiliate them. We need to sympathize. We, 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 we don't need to do platitudes and, oh, son, when I was your age, you know, that, that routine, okay? Or, you know, you're just in phase two. Wait till you're in phase three. That's when really life starts to happen. Guys, that is foreign to the Bible And it's foreign to the idea of what it means to be a brother. What is a brother? They are an equal. And that means that when we approach younger men, we do so in humility. I might could actually learn something here. Because one of the the people who did this the best um, was Susan's dad. He passed away about four years ago. Um, He was a believer longer than I was. He was an elder in a church. Um, he was a faithful servant of Christ. And I remember back in my seminary days and um, when we were first married, he would sit down with me and he would just ask questions. He would say, well, you know, what do you think about this? You know, and we're doing this thing in our church. We're doing that thing in our church. And well, what do you do in your church? And, and I just remember, um, and, and by the way, guys, I was absolutely clueless and no way to qualify to answer any of his questions, okay? Didn't stop me from answering them, but it didn't, I wasn't qualified. There was such humility. There was such humility. You see, because he didn't make it about him. 
He made it about me and the love and care he thought I needed in order to grow in my leadership and my faith. All right, let's go to the third one. For older women, what is the operative word there? I think as we read this, gentleness. Treat older women as mothers. We need to understand something. Older women, okay, in the life of the church were indispensable. Um, We know most likely that it was primarily widows, wealthy widows, who were the patrons of the apostles, of Jesus, and leaders in the early church. When I say patrons, that means they bankrolled the operation, okay? Jesus had a whole group of these people that he traveled with, Mary, Martha, Lazarus, that was a wealthy family. Um, Interestingly, Paul, in his letter to Romans, says, hey, say hello to the mother of Rufus for me. Do you know why? She was like a mother to me. See, older women in the life of the church are the sagacious founts of wisdom. And let me just say, we have some amazing spiritual moms in this church. And by the way, women, God has called every one of you to be a spiritual mom to someone. There is someone in this church in your family that is younger than you. There is someone in this church in your family, this family that is older than you. And we have some amazing spiritual moms. As some of you know, I've led this devotional Bible study on weekdays, going through the book of Exodus. We've taken a hiatus until the fall. But I got a, we were talking about the tabernacle and the tent of meeting, and I got a, um, a note from my, my friend, Kim Hughes. And Kim is the wife of one of our elders, David. Um, we've known each other 25 years. And she said, you know, here's a great resource for you to use in your study. And I looked at it and I was like, yeah, this is a fantastic resource. And she wants me to make sure that you know it's from Preset Ministries and Kay Arthur. I refuse to believe that. I think Kim came up with it herself. But you get what I'm saying. It was so helpful. I was like, oh, I'm just drinking in the wisdom to see how spiritual moms here have poured into my own wife's life. And when I think about correcting someone like Kim Hughes, I mean, how would I do that? How how should I do that, Kim? Um, On my knees with an apology for having to do it, right? But you get the idea. Oh, gentleness. Spiritual motherhood It is the life milk, the lifeblood of the church of God. Because here's the reality. And this is both, we know this historically and by nature and biology, women live longer on average than men. Genetics, war, occupational hazards, what have you. And this is why we see spiritual moms play such a vital role in the life of God's family over the generations. Okay, finally, one last group. Younger women. And this is interesting because it's, it's the only one of these that Paul adds an additional qualifier. He says, treat younger women as sisters, and then here is, in all purity. Now, I don't think we have to guess as to why Paul puts this in. Um, hardly a day goes by when we do not see how someone of influence or leadership or authority or position in the body of Christ totally takes advantage of their situation, their power, their trust that they've been given, and violates those things sexually. 
and it brings great disgrace uh, upon the church and the body of Christ and our witness. Um, it's, a, it's a violation of the most basic command of to love our neighbor. And what Paul is saying here is don't sexualize younger women. Think about them. Treat them as you would a sister. A sister is one that by nature and otherwise, you do not have a sexual interest in, right? That's, that's the nature of sisterhood. And Paul is saying, learn to view women in this way. Now, there's also another error that we can fall off on, maybe sometimes in conservative circles, an equal and opposite error in a lot of ways, which goes the other direction and says, oh, well, well the way to obey this command, Pastor Paul, is, is I want to keep all distance from all women. I want to, you know, women, we won't say this out loud, but it kind of comes across this way. Women are a disease. They're a scourge. They're the temptress. They're, they're just, that's, I can't have a combo. I can't be alone. I have to have permanent COVID protocols always in place, six feet distance, you know, the whole thing, right? Is that the way you treat your sister? Is that the way I treat my sister? You know, interestingly, uh, a retreat speaker came and spoke to our women a few years ago. She told the story about how she found herself on the same flight as, and she was a single woman, is a single woman, as a bunch of the male staff and pastors on her church, at her church. And in the name of being above reproach and the Billy Graham rule on steroids, they said, best for you not to travel with us on the same plane the way it would look. And so why don't you rebook your flight? We'll go on ahead. And she proceeded to have to wait the whole day in the airport, blah, 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 yada, yada. In every way, inconvenience. Let me ask you this. Would you treat your sister that way? If you're under 16, you can't answer that question. Okay. But, if you're, but the rest of you, would you treat your sister that way? Of course not. As much as there is not to be a sexual interest there is to be, this is the whole point, a sisterly affection. Because have you ever seen a brother and sister when they're not fighting, like how they, they it, there's just something special with a brother and sister. There's a care, there's a protectiveness, there's an entrust, there, there, it's, 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 it's a sweet thing. And Paul says that is to characterize your engagement with younger women. They are your sisters in Christ. They are your friends. Um, you have life to share with them. Yes, there's all the dangers we know are there. And Paul, sexual purity, the whole thing. But let's not, okay, church, throw the baby out with the bathwater and understanding what God is calling us to. Last, last thing I'll say about this point, then we'll get to the last one. What's the essence? How do we sum up everything that we just saw in these first two verses? It's simply this. We are a family. And when you think about engaging in the body of Christ, it's so easy for your primary calculus to be about yourself. Who am I? What am I bringing to this? What do I need? What am I trying to get? What, am I, what, what are my goals? Who's frustrating my, my purposes? Who? And Paul's saying, no, no, no. Think about the other. Think about the other. See, because the storms are going to come. The problems are going to come. But when we have this foundational trust built in as the family of God of how we're treating one another as older brothers, younger brothers, older um, 
older men, younger men, older, older women, younger women, you get the whole thing. This is what Paul says is the lubricant, is the oil that, that makes the parts run together. And this is, says, Timothy, charge the people, encourage them in these things. And then he turns his attention, this is our second point, to a process that he wants to employ them in. Now, let me say this as we address this last point as it relates to widows. We need to understand that Paul gives directives here to two different groups of widows. Now, there's some overlap between these groups, but they're two different groups. And here they are. The first group is those widows in the church who have great financial need. They don't have anybody to take care of them. And Paul's command is honor them. And that's going to have a financial component. We're going to talk about that in a second. There's a second group of widows who um, may or may not be in financial need, but they are widows who have made a commitment, a vow to the Lord, um, almost like you would see in an in a order of nuns, for example, in a convent. This is the same idea. There was, this was an order of widows who had taken a vow to remain single, to not remarry, so as to use the remainder of their life in special service to the Lord. And so Paul has something to say to each of them. The first group, he says, honor them. In the second group, he says, enroll them in this particular way. Now, let me look at the second group first, because I, I want to just touch on this very quickly. Look at verse 9. It says, let a widow be enrolled if she is not less than 60 years of age. Paul is saying, for this group of widows who are to be set apart for special service to the body, here are some qualifications, okay? Now, this should sound very familiar. Paul's already given us qualifications for elders. He's already given us qualifications for deacons. And now he's going to give us some qualifications for these widows. Look back at the verse 4. And having a reputation for good works... If she has brought up children, has shown hospitality, has washed the feet of the saints, has cared for the afflicted, and has devoted herself to every good work, these are the qualifications that would set a widow apart to do this kind of service. Now, I think probably this group of widows was, was, were probably part of the deacon structure of the church. And, and they were maybe a subset of the deacons or worked with the deacons. We're not, we're not entirely sure. But Paul gives a very clear instruction here. Don't enroll the younger widows into this order. See, it seems that some of the younger widows had enrolled, signed up for service, but were changing their mind in midstream and going off and remarrying. And, and remarriage is fine. In fact, Paul goes on to say those women actually should remarry if they want to remarry. But he's just saying don't, don't make that a cumbersome obstacle for the young widows. Don't enroll them in this. They don't know what's going to happen in their lives. They don't know who they're going to meet. They're not, they're not going to know what's going to happen. Okay. So 60 years and older. Now, what is, how does this relate to us? How does this relate to us? Because I think when we consider what it means to serve the body of Christ, that that is a lifetime endeavor. We never retire from service to others. We never tap out 
of ministering and being a part of the family of God and the body of Christ. Now, our vocations might change, our health might change, our professions might change. We might retire from our professional job, but there is no such thing biblically in retiring from the body of Christ. What Paul's emphasis here is to, is to press in upon us that whatever station of life that we're in, we are called to leverage that station and that season for service to the family of God. Now, that's going to look different for everyone because some of you have young kids. Some of you are single moms, single dads. Some of you are widows. Some of you are widowers. Some of you are empty nesters. Some of you are just getting started. And then all the stuff in between. And so ministry and service will be contextual. It will look different. But guess what? It will never be optional. And this is, seems to be Paul's pressing point here to this group. Now, let's go back to verse 3 and look at this initial group that Paul talks about. He says, verse 3, honor widows who are truly widows. What does that mean? Doesn't a widow know she's a widow or not? What does that mean? It means widows who are truly in need. And when he says to honor them, honor in 1 Timothy is always used in the context of financial support. And so what he is simply saying here is honor those, financially provide for those who are truly in need. Now, one of the things that we said before is that some widows in um, the church were taking advantage of their situation. They had means, but they were taking the stimulus checks anyway, right? They, were, they had family to support them, but the family's like, we'd rather spend that money on something else. Let the church kind of handle that. And Paul says, no, 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 no. And he gives some very specific directives here, okay? Look at verse 4. It says, but if a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. Paul's simply saying those families that have capacity to care for their aging parents should do that. And in doing that, Paul says it's not just a matter of alleviating the financial burden of the church. It is, in fact, a spiritual act of worship. Christians, we think about worship as what we do in an hour and a half on Sunday. But we're reminded, are we not, we've said this over and over here, Worship is our life. Worship is to be lived to God's glory in every area of our life. And Paul seems to say one of our principal acts of worship is how we love and provide for those who are closest to us, and we don't delegate that out. Now, I fully understand okay, that this brings up a whole host of issues because we have resources at our disposal that the Apostle Paul and the early church could never dream of. We have parents, people live longer than they ever did in the New Testament on average. And so let me just say what I think this means and doesn't mean. First of all, um, it, we, it is good and right, and I'm, it's a blessing that we're able to partner with people in the physical care of our elderly and our parents and family. I'm thankful for nursing homes. I'm thankful for nurses and caregivers and live-in facilities and communities, 100%. But the one thing you can never delegate as a family member is love and affection. 
You can never delegate spiritual care. Spiritual care of the family is still the family's responsibility. Now, you may have people who help. You may have people who come alongside. But ultimately, at the end of the day, is this just sort of an out of sight, out of mind thing for me? Like, this is too much. I can't handle it. Somebody else has got to deal with it. You know, whatever's happening spiritually, emotionally, psychologically for my family members, it's just too difficult for me to take on, Pastor Paul. And we use it as an excuse for emotional and spiritual abandonment. And we have to, this means, I don't know what this means for your situation at all, okay? There's a million factors. But what I do know, it means starting from the standpoint of God as a, as a child, as I think about my dad, as Susan thinks about her mom, we have to ask, what does it mean as a spiritual act of worship to care for them, to come alongside them, to, 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 to love them? And, and Paul, Paul's very clear here. There's a principle of reciprocity, right? He says, some re, make some return to their parents. What does that mean? Hey, your parents laid it on the line for you. For those of you who are parents, you know you have done things for your kids that they will never know about, okay? Your parents have done the same for you. And Paul's saying it's a principle of spiritual reciprocity that we have that as a category. Because I just want to hold up the example just this morning of Mike and Prue Slaughterback. Mike's one of our elders And Mike and Prue had aging parents that both lived with them at different times over a course of a number of years. And I would tell you, if they were here, um, if they were going to speak publicly about this, they would tell you that was a massively taxing season for both of them. And and there would have been such a temptation at that moment to say, you know what, my mom doesn't even, I don't even know if she knows who I am. I, Mom, I don't, she can't feed herself. She can't, she's having a hard time taking care of herself. We're having to cancel vacations, and there always has to be someone there for her, and there's restrictions. And, and I just remember asking them, you know, what's compelling you guys to take on the care of your parents in this way? And they said, and they said it's as an image bearer of God, it's just what they deserve. And that really stuck with me. Now, that decision they made may not be your decision. It may not be able to be your decision. That's why we have um, so many resources at our disposal. What I'm pressing us towards, church, is to make this idea of care, whether it's to our parents, family members, kids, spouses, and the family of God, that needs to be a, a category of spiritual worship for all of us. Because let me just say this in in closing. Our heart as a part of this church is to care for everyone who does not have a family. Whether you are a widower or a widow, a single mom, a single dad. Because single moms, that's a whole another emerging category the Apostle Paul didn't even have to deal with. Who moms who were made widows by the fact that their husbands abandoned them or shirked their responsibilities. Just please let us know. There's, there, we have a lot of people in the church. There's a lot of needs, but our heart beats that we be the family of God for everyone. 
In fact, one thing I'll ask you to pray for is that we have a breakfast next week that's going to honor the widows of our church. And it's, going to, it's inviting all those who are in that situation in life, sharing ways that the church can love and support them, ways that they can connect, ways they can serve, ways that they can serve. We believe that this is what God calls us to as the family of God. Guys, why is all this possible? How is it possible that we can actually be a family? It's because of Jesus. Jesus came to purchase a people for himself. He came to purchase us us by his death and resurrection. And he's going to come back one day to reclaim us as his own because the church is God's forever family. See, we won't have the biological family, the nuclear family, any of that in heaven. We will have the family of God. And if today, a day, Mother's Day is a, is a day, a difficult day for you, you've had a child die, or you've wanted children and couldn't have them, or you've wanted to be married and haven't been able to be married, or you have a prodigal, or fill in all the blanks, know that God, your father, is the father of all mercies. And he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for you, to make you a part of his family. Let us, Four Oaks, be that family, live that family, and rejoice in what it means to be a family of grace purchased by the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray.